Good morning. You ever have one of those jobs where you had multiple bosses? Had that experience of being under the authority of different people? Each had different expectations, different ideas about what you should be doing and how you should do it. The manager tells you to do it this way, and her assistant comes along behind her and says, no, do it that way. A director tells you to prioritize one activity, and another director tells you to put that one on the back burner and focus on something else. When that's your experience, it's kind of crazy making, isn't it? To have a job under bosses who themselves aren't clear with each other or with you about what your work entails. Well, pastoral ministry can be one of those jobs. Bless you. <laughs> Very often, pastors accept calls to churches that don't provide any job descriptions, and elders accept appointments in churches that offer few to no clear guidelines as to what they are supposed to be doing and how. An assumption is made that every pastor knows what to do, and an equally dangerous assumption by some in the congregation that they know what the pastor should do. And all of us know about the pitfalls of assuming, don't we? <laughs> we also know that problems can arise when a pastor's understanding of his job and the congregation's expectations are different. Recently, a wisely anonymous person wrote the following, titled, If Pastoral Job Descriptions Were Accurate. Needlelock Church, Seeking Senior Pastor. Responsibilities are as follows. Board chairman slash member. Have omniscient knowledge of all activities in the church. Guardian for the church's stockpile of golden calves. Agree with and support all board members' opinions, even if those opinions aren't in agreement. Preaching. Preach powerful, convicting, thoroughly deep, expository messages that are no longer than a TV show. Must include stories, jokes, and illustrations, too. Oh, and use the Holy Spirit. Address all church issues and needs in your preaching. Don't address issues or needs that make people uncomfortable. Don't offend people with your preaching. But don't worry about offending people with your preaching. Counseling. Be careful to limit the amount of time you spend on counseling. It's not your first priority. But spend time counseling with any member who needs it anytime they need it for as long as they need it. <laughs> Leadership. Be omnipresent. You are expected to attend all meetings and events, even those that are at the same time in different places. Provide leadership by being the hands and feet of Jesus. That is, we don't have a janitor and no one will pick up that old styrofoam cup of coffee the women's class left on the floor three weeks ago. Finally, as a senior staff member, the pastor will be expected to attend prayer meetings, staff meetings, and other events purposeful to the mission of the church, including weekends and holidays. You are allotted two weeks vacation a year, but we reserve the right to grumble about you being gone. And lastly, always fear your pulpit replacement. If a pastor wrote that, I hope he took a break right afterwards, <laughs> talked to his church about a sabbatical, read some good books. That's an awful load to live under. But contrary to what some of my colleagues might tell you or want you to believe, I'm here to tell you pastoring is not the hardest job in the world. But 
At the same time, like all work, it has some pretty unique challenges, and it is true. There are many different expectations that pastors, elders have to navigate in church life. Some of those expectations are explicit, and some of them are implied. One of the breakout sessions that we just attended in the Gospel Coalition, our ministry cohort fellows went down to Baptist Youth Camp, and we we would hopefully would normally be going out to Indianapolis to this conference, but instead we went to Charlotte, Maine. Much shorter commute. Um, and, th and that was fun. That worked out just fine. Um, we just didn't get to see Indianapolis, but we got to enjoy BYC. And one of the breakout sessions in that conference um, noted that a pastor must have different skill sets and be is required to move between those skill sets and apply them day to day and week to week. Sometimes it's almost moment by moment. And when they tallied up all those different skill sets that a pastor is supposed to have, the number was 64. There are many and varied tasks coupled with the many to varied expectations that come with pastoral ministry. And they sometimes make it difficult. And that is no doubt what has prompted theologian and author Stanley Harwas to to make a twist on the idea of death by a thousand cuts, you know, you understand that, death by a thousand cuts, and he likens pastoral ministry to being nibbled to death by ducks. <laughs> it's a great image, isn't it? Well, one way to keep our ministers from being nibbled to death by ducks or maybe even nipping sheep is for both pastors and church members to know what the job is. And the way we know what the job is, since God created the job, is to know what the Bible says about it. This morning we're in the book of Acts. We're certainly not exploring the totality of all the Bible says about the pastoral role, but we're in a section where the Apostle Paul has summoned the pastors, summoned the elders of the church at Ephesus, on the one hand, to bid them farewell, he's not going to see them anymore. And on the other, to remind them what their job is and to encourage them to do it. Let's pray. Father, again, we uh, come and sit underneath your word. We are so grateful, Lord, to be reminded that every time we open this book of yours, you are speaking to us. And God, you always do your part. You are always so faithful to speak. May we be faithful to listen to hear and to receive what your word says over and above any thoughts we might have of our own or what our own word would even declare. Let us bow to yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text in Acts 20 recounts specifically Paul's message to these Ephesian elders. And in his words, we find some helpful insights for God's pastors and those they lead and serve. We're joining Paul's preaching in verse 28. And he starts out with an imperative, pay careful attention to yourselves. That phrase translated pay careful attention in some English versions has been translated take heed. Uh, it is from a word that means to hold the mind towards, to apply oneself. The message paraphrase says uh, be on your toes. And the meaning is simple, be on the lookout, pay attention. And notice the order, this goes to the pastor first. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to pastors and elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Stay humble. Stay alert. You might be a leader, but that doesn't mean that you cannot be deceived. You might be a leader. That doesn't make you impervious to attack. In fact, one could make the case quite convincingly, I think, that church leaders at all levels are the special objects of satanic attack. How many stories have we heard over the years 
about the moral failures of ministers that led to the demise of their ministry and the destruction of their churches. And if not the destruction of their churches, significant disruption in the churches because some churches that go through that take years to recover and some never do. The prophet Zechariah wrote, and Jesus repeated this, it's recorded in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So the enemy knows that if he can take the pastors down, he can cause significant problems for the sheep. They're just going to scatter. The very threats, the fiery darts that the elders are supposed to protect the church against may be aimed at them as well, I think is what Paul is saying. So, so in all their watching, their job is to watch, but in all their watching, they must be careful to watch themselves. Take heed, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, right? A flock is a group. A flock is a, a gathering. About this with a word surprisingly appropriate for many today who want to be spiritual but not religious, that want to be Christian but not part of the church. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I believe every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty according to the scriptures. God's people are not dogs, Otherwise, they might go about one by one. They are sheep, and therefore, they should be in flocks. We're sheep, and we belong together. We should be in a flock. And, and flock is a biblical term, a familiar term, a tender depiction of the people of God. God is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. That's our call to worship, right? Psalm 95. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand, or the psalmist pleading in Psalm 80 for revival, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who, shepherd, who shepherds Joseph like a flock. The saved of God are his flock on this earth, and the elders of his church are appointed to watch over that flock. Our text is one of the passages, actually, that help us see the elders' God-given responsibility for protecting, protecting the flock. Sometimes this role of protector is a tough one to fulfill, particularly if people don't understand its scriptural origins. They don't understand why uh, an elder would be trying to protect them. Sometimes this role of protector is a tough one to fulfill, especially if people don't feel like being protected. That seems to be more, more of an American way of thinking, at least, right? We're on our own. We can handle it. We've got it in hand. You don't need to protect me. I'll take care of myself understand and even appreciate a little bit of independence but there's a good reason that elders have to take this watching of the flock very seriously because as we read in the book of Hebrews it is the pastors the leaders and no one else as regards church governance that will give an account for the souls of the members so Paul tells the Ephesian elders take heed pay attention to yourselves and likewise keep your focus on the sheep in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. How do you get a pastor? How do you get elders? The Holy Spirit appoints them. I'm going to get to that in a second, but first let me, let me hop up on one of my favorite soapboxes for a second. As long as I have the privilege of pastoring, I'm going to continue to beat this drum, and you know it. Some of you are tired of it already, but you'll get over it. Because <laughs> you know it's only going to get worse. Oh, I don't mean to be dismissive. And I hope you don't grow deaf or tone deaf about this thing. But I want you to understand, church, I am convinced that at the heart of many church issues is an under, and anybody that's been around a church for any length of time can understand sometimes you have church issues. At the heart of those is an under, underdeveloped or outright wrong ecclesiology. 
Ecclesiology being a fancy word for theology of the church. Uh, ecclesia in the Greek, the church, the assembly, the church. A proper ecclesiology, a proper theology of the church is essential for the capital C church and any local expression of it like UBC if we're going to do what we're intended to do. But poor ecclesiology, an improper understanding of the church, its structure, its purpose, its mission, in my experience, has been responsible for a ton of unnecessary conflict and really a good deal of bad acting among Christians. And a common thread in all that bad acting is the functional reality that God has been disfellowshipped. And I don't mean to say that, that anybody would consciously join a church and say, well, we kicked God out a while ago. Or we never really let him in from the beginning. But just I'm talking about a functional reality that God is not playing the part that he is intended to play. He, he has been disfellowshipped. And by that I mean not to be proud or sound that way, that you and I are always in danger of losing sight of who owns church. And we are in danger of losing sight of who leads the church. The church is not a human enterprise. The church is not a, a, a primarily human institution. It is the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. And so consequently, Jesus builds his church and Jesus equips his church and Jesus arranges for the care of his church as, as he sees best and fit. And I would love to preach this sermon to you. That's like three points right there. I could come up with a poem. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 4. But I'm going to leave that to you, Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, because I have much more to say in our own text. To these ends, however, Christ's building, equipping, and arranging for the care of his body Paul tells us it is the Holy Spirit, it is the third person of the Trinity who is active in all the workings of this church, including the appointment of its pastors. The Holy Spirit appoints pastors, and the role of the congregation, they well, what's our job, what do we do? The role of the congregation relative to the calling of the pastor by the Holy Spirit is to discern and then cast a vote about what you think the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Holy Spirit is up to which means we either affirm a particular leader and we say, yes, we think the Holy Spirit has appointed this leader for us and he is, in fact, God's gift to help the church. And if you think that sounds arrogant, it's in Ephesians, God's gifts. Not that any pastor should come in thinking they're God's gift to the church, <laughs> but like literally in Ephesians, it says that he's God's gift to help the church. Or if we decide no, then together by the Spirit, we would say, no, we are not going to affirm this because we don't believe the Holy Spirit has appointed this particular person to lead this church. Either way, the point in our passage this morning is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is actively involved in the structure of his church, making its elders and its overseers. It is not a human undertaking. It is not a, a mere business decision. And every pastor that he calls is appointed by the Spirit to care for the church of God. So, so far from this passage, the, the, the pastor's job is to keep an eye on himself, to pay attention to the flock, in order that he might protect the flock and care for the flock, and to care for this church of God, literally the word translated means to, to feed or to tend as a shepherd. That's the same word Peter uses 
in his directive to the elders that we find in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Shepherd, that is, feed the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Take care of yourselves and his people, Paul says, because they are a special possession and they have been redeemed at a high cost. They have been obtained with the blood of the Son of God. And so God has purchased the church. The church is the property of God. The church is the possession of God. The church is a compilation of believers who profess Jesus, who believe that he died for their sins on the cross, that he paid their debt of sin, that he has redeemed them, forgiven their sins, bought them back to the glory of God. God has bought this church with his son. It is his, which means it is not the property of a denomination. It does not belong to a founding family. How many of you have, have been involved in that experience? You don't have to raise your hands, but you know how strange it can be for somebody to just stra straight out come out with it at some point and say, this church was built on land my grandfather gave, and this is my, this is my family's church. Well, the Bible does not make accommodation for that. And I would not want to be disrespectful, but I would say something to the tune I believe of, well, that was generous of your grandfather, but you do realize that God had that land before Grampy. The earth is the Lord's, all it contains. How good of God to give your grandfather that land that you might give it back to God. It's still about God. It's not about a family, not about a founding family. It's not about, the church is not the property of an influential donor. James cautions us about that, that we not buy into the, the, to the status delineations of the world, that we not give preference to somebody just because they're wealthy or because they support the church with a lot of money, that we not give favor to them because sometimes, not always, but sometimes those donors, by virtue of the fact that they do significantly carry this church, then all of a sudden somehow subtly begin to believe, and sometimes not so subtly, that they get to call the shots. They get to direct the course, the agenda of the church, which is God's and not the rich donors. Amen? The church, then, is not the property of a domineering pastor. And when I say domineering, it's a charismatic pastor, a domineering pastor, uh, an influential pastor. Of course, a pastor wants to have influence, but the church doesn't belong to any pastor. And this is why there's beauty in the plurality of elders. Because it's so easy for one person to be misled. It's so easy for one person to get on an ego trip or to go the wrong way and take a whole crowd with him. But if you've got a group of men sitting around in a circle regularly holding one another to account and asking the right questions and pulling out the Bible and measuring what you're doing according to the Word of God, the odds of you getting off that far are really diminished. But how many of us still know the domineering pastor who comes in sort of under the Moses model of leadership that says, I'm God's anointed. They maybe do really feel like they're God's gift to that church, not in a good way, and they take it in a bad direction. And many people are hurt by it. The church doesn't belong to that pastor. And even now, as much as I love this church, I love you guys, 
I say about UBC, I do. I'm like, yeah, my church. Oh, it's not mine. You know, it's, but it's true. Words matter. Like, it's mine in a sense in that I'm connected, but it's not mine. I get in trouble as your pastor when I start to think it's mine. I, I think it's on me, right? It's not mine. It's his. <laughs> there are days you drive home and you go, yeah, that's yours, Lord. <laughs> you do with that whatever you want. Just let me know. church belongs to God. And the leaders of the church are stewards of what God owns and what God has exclusive claim to. The leaders, the shepherds, are under shepherds of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is God. David said that so beautifully in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Anybody who takes up the mantle of leadership under God is simply an under-shepherd, stewarding what God has, what God has exclusive claims to, and to trying to do the best we can for God's glory. And that's the proper order of things, I think, lest any elder or member or pastor get confused. That's a proper view according to Scripture. The officers, the shepherds of the church are appointed by the Holy Spirit. The members of the church are God's chosen flock. The expectation of God is that they're going to be well cared for. They will be fed. But that's not all that Paul wants the elders here to take heed of or to pay attention to. Because this church is not just a, a, a human institution, but a divine one. Because it exists to carry out a divine purpose. The work of God's kingdom on earth. What we pray when we pray every week, thy kingdom come. That's what we're here for, to move the kingdom of God forward because that is who we are and that's what we're doing, we will invariably be the target of our enemy, the devil, who would love to tear us down. So we are the enemy, uh, enemy's target and uh, the target also of those who would do his bidding, whether they're conscious of it or not. And Paul, I think here, as he's bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, has this very strong sense that while he was among them, he was a restraining force. Now, this, this may be implied, but I think, I think it's true that he's a restraining force, and that while he's there, because he says he, he never ceased to teach and he never ceased to admonish every day with tears. He was working among them and working among them, and because of the presence of such a spiritual figure like Paul with these, these daily admonitions and keeping track of things, he's holding at bay the forces that would come in and disrupt, or he's confronting them when they do come in. We've seen that also from the writings of the Apostle Paul. That's his job, but now he's leaving. And so he understands that, that when a good and a godly leader is pulled out from the midst, that makes a church particularly vulnerable to attack. When you lose a good and a godly leader, there's a whole host of emotions that are, are there swirling around, and there is a, um, a void left that nobody's going to just step in and fill, and, and it, it can leave us worried. What's going to happen next? It also leaves a space for maybe somebody who has less admirable, admirable intentions to step in, somebody who, who is selfishly prideful or willful or has an idea of how things ought to go. And this person was at once kept at bay by the man of God, is now unrestrained and able to exert his or her will. And, and there we could think of many scenarios where a church could be vulnerable. So Paul says... 
as this is part of helping the elders to take heed, this is what it means to pay, pay attention, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, he says that as if he knows it to be true. That's what he says. I know. And you know what? He was right. It's just what happened. He knew that through the Spirit. God had told him. And he's telling them, I know. I know what's going to happen, so I need, I need you to come. And you think, well, why did he bother even bringing me here? Because he has an important message. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves, fierce wolves. The wolf poses a great threat to the sheep. The shepherd keeps the wolves at bay. The shepherd protects the flock. In the absence of a shepherd or the shepherd that's not paying any attention, the shepherd that falls asleep at the switch, so to speak, signals the potential for a breach, allows for an infiltration. The wolves that circle the flock are opportunistic predators. And if they see that opening, they're coming in. They're coming into the pen and they're going to get at the sheep. And when they come in and get at the sheep, they will not spare them, Paul says. What are they going to do? They're going to devour them. They're going to feed on them. They're going to use them for their own gain. They're going to kill them. These wolves Paul's talking about are false teachers. He's not talking about literal wolves. They're not going to literally come in and devour the sheep, but this is what they're going to do. They're going to come in and they're going to spread deceit and falsehood and division, and they're going to lead people away. They're going to lure people away from the safety of the truth of the word of God. Some of these deadly teachers are going to come from outside the church. And we're going to say, well, how on earth do they get in? Well, this is part of the elder's job. Pay attention. <laughs> See, see who's coming in and make sure that you're not admitting wolves. This can be a little tough for folks in our culture that, that there's a, there, there are requirements for membership or that somebody is actually kind of standing at the gate. Because the, the, the way that most wolves get into the sheep is they're let in. They're, they're let in. They, the door is swung open for them. It's not that somebody's doing their job to say, are you in fact a sheep? Or, and Jesus warned us about this, right? So we're not out on a limb here. Jesus warned us about these false teachers, about wolves in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. That is why it is so important for a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing fellowship to have a sound process of admitting members. To stop these wolves from getting in. To turn the predators away. I've been around long enough. I've served enough churches. I've fellowshiped with enough pastors. Some of you have been around a while too. You've seen what I'm talking about. You know the devastating effects of opening the doors to wolves. Opening the doors to unregenerate members. I'm all for welcoming folks. I'm all for worshiping with folks. I'm all for fellowshipping with anyone. You come through these doors, you are welcome. But if you want to become a member of this church, you've got to be saved. And if you're not saved, we can't have you as a member. And the reason we can't have you as a member if you're not saved is because you don't have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, then you're listening to something different than what we're listening to, and we are not in unity. And we have to be of the same mind and of the same Spirit, Paul says. And that is the Holy Spirit, in order for us to move together. Churches that don't practice the sort of diligence that we try to practice with, with potential members, as in... Tell, tell us about your salvation. Tell us about when Jesus saved you. Tell us about the fruit of your life. Tell us about the gospel. Not asking anybody to be like, some people are like, ah, that makes me a theologian. And as I said to the counseling cohort, you're already a theologian. 
question is whether or not you're a good one. <laughs> but we're not looking for some specific, you know, refined, eloquent presentation. You, you don't need that when Jesus is in your life. I, I, I watched somebody one time change. I watched somebody go from one of the most self-centered men I'd ever met in my life to becoming one of the most generous people who he still is today. And I didn't know what was going on with him. I looked at him at one point and he said to me, he said, would you, would you conduct my wedding? And I said, no. And he said, why not? I said, because you're not a Christian and the girl you want to marry is. I'll go to your wedding. I'll attend your wedding, but I will not officiate at your wedding. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I'm a Christian. And I said, really? Tell me about it. And he proceeded to tell me about how Jesus had changed his life. And in all honesty, there was an amen behind his testimony because I had seen it. And you know, he didn't open up his book and take me down the Romans road and back. He just talked about how he received the Lord and the changes that the Lord had made in his life and how he had swapped over instead of worrying about himself and now become worried about other people. Instead of taking care of himself, he's taking care of other people. And I'm saying, amen. That's what we're looking for when someone says, can I be a member of the United Baptist Church? It's just tell us the difference Jesus makes in your life. We have to know that you know him because wolves are dangerous and they threaten the church. They come from inside because we let a man, and they come from outside. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. So they come from outside, and they come from inside, Paul says. And the same thing, how did they get in there? Well, Jude tells us about that. We've already preached through Jude quite resoundingly, so we don't need to go back there except to say the people who caused the problems in the church in Jude's day crept in, Jude says, unnoticed. Well, how do you creep in? That's just creepy language, isn't it? They crept in unnoticed. Well, why? Because they look like you, and they talk like you, and they act like you, and they, they infiltrate a church, and they develop relationships. And it isn't only after time that eventually some true colors begin to emerge, and you find out that they're dangerous. Speaking blasphemy, Jude says, teaching about things they don't know about. People who mislead the sheep and cause divisions, who don't even really care about the sheep, Jude would say, because they are devoid of the Spirit. Therefore, Paul says, for this reason be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And admonish means to caution people, to warn people gently, to exhort. The shepherd has a duty to pay attention to, to protect, to feed, and to teach the flock. Verse 20, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from this, from house to house. Paul is teaching and he's simply saying to the elders, you're going to do well if you follow my example. Just do what I've been doing. I didn't shy, shy away from it and neither should you. Continue to teach the church about God's truth. And if you can teach the church about God's truth, and if they can know what the Bible says, they're going to be able to recognize the danger. They're going to see the threat. They're going to understand something is false. They're going to understand something is true. That's what you got to do is continue to teach them. That way they'll be built up and they won't easily be led away by those teachers who want to lead them away, who are attacking the very church of God. It's interesting that this is kind of what Paul's leaving them to, the word of God. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I commend you to God. I'm leaving, and I'm leaving, I'm leaving you to him, and I'm leaving you to his word. These are the things that are going to help you. I want you to imagine for just a second, if you would, that you are leaving the dearest on earth to you. That you are, you are leaving them. You are not going to see them again. They are not going to see you again. This is what Paul's going through with the, with the Ephesian elders. You'll never see their faces. They will never see your face again. So picture that. Picture that person, those people. What are you going to say to them? You have one last conversation. Years ago, I used to travel a lot more than I do now for work. I don't miss that. I'm very happy to be home and very happy to be ministering in my own hometown. I created a file for my wife. Put it on the desktop of the computer. Because I like to be organized and I like to have things in order. And I'm not always great at it, but that's my preference. This file was titled, If I Die. For some reason, she thought that was morbid. <laughs> but it contained all the things that she would need to know if I were to die that she doesn't necessarily pay attention to and doesn't really want to talk about. <laughs> so some of you sitting here are like, I'm with you, Scott. That's what to do. And others of you are like, I'm with her. I don't want to talk about it either. I'm not trying to divide anybody. I'm just trying to make a point. I still keep that file. I have updated the title. As things have become a bit more clear to me, it now says when I die. <laughs> I'm looking around and realizing this is not an if. So now when I die, I want her to be able to click and see who holds the insurance policies and what she should be expecting, which I say to her, honey, if I can kick off real quick, you're going to be a lot better off than if I make it to retirement. <laughs> right now, she still disagrees with me, but... So, it's important to know who holds the insurance policies. It's important to know uh, where the deeds to the properties are, right? It's important that there's some idea of what you'd like to see done with the things that you have, anybody who might want something and where it ought to go. You don't, you don't want to leave a mess. You, you don't, right? No fighting over stuff. Families get torn apart over stuff. No fighting over stuff. It's a gift to give to your, to your spouse, to your kids, to your grandkids. To be a little bit clear with some of this stuff anyway. Those are important things, aren't they? To get clear and straight. But listen, they're not the most important thing. Because if we can get something else straight, the blow of losing anyone on this plane will be lessened. If we can get something else straight, and what is that something else? It is this. And this is what we want to say. At least it's what I want to say. No God. Trust Jesus and live your life for him. 
And if you will do that, because of his good grace, he is a gracious God, and his good plans, we will be together one day forever. That's a husband's message. That's a father's message. That's a grandfather's message. That's a friend's message. That's a pastor's message. Paul knows those elders don't need him, even if they think they do. He's never been interested in creating a cult of personality. His whole being has been, since his conversion, to draw attention to Jesus Christ. He wants to preach him and him crucified. He said, I've not shied away from teaching you anything. It's my good pleasure to testify to the gospel of grace. That's what I'm here for. And when I go, you think you need me. You don't. You know what you need? You need God. You know what you need and what's going to help you more than I ever have? It's the counsel of the gospel of grace. It's God's good word. You need these things much, much more than you need me. It's not, that doesn't bother him. It doesn't hurt his ego. And now I commend you, he says, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What a great gift. God and his word, able to build you up and give you the inheritance. Don't worry about my inheritance. Worry about the divine one. The pastor's job. In coming and in going, in living and dying, to point people to God and his word, which never fails, unlike anything in this world. It endures forever.